go today. The day of the Lord demands that we make a decision. Just as real as the time that you and I are experiencing right now, the day of the Lord in the future and its complete fulfillment will be experienced in reality, just like you and I are sitting here. And in that, because of its reality, it demands for us to make a decision. I've been working through this text all week. Pastor Curtis graciously asked me to be here today. Uh, And as I've been working through the text, I've been working through my own decision. And this text begs for us to make a decision. What will we do with the reality of the day of the Lord? What will we do with the reality of the day of the Lord? And let me tell you, all of us, one way or the other, I've made a decision working through this text. You sitting here today, one way or the other, you will make a decision. It will either be out of apathy that you won't care. Maybe it won't take plant and seed and and flourish. But out of apathy, you choose not to make a decision. Or you either have adherence to what the Word of God shares with you today. And out of adherence, you'll see a fruitful life. You'll see a closeness and relationship to God. But the apathy or the adherence will bring about destruction or deliverance. And the book of Joel is very clear on that. There is no halfway. There is no in-between. There is no, I'm not choosing sides on this. A failure to make a choice is a choice in and of itself, and it brings about destruction. However, in our adherence to God's word, it brings about a true blessing that can only be realized in the blessing, the reality, and the eternal nature of Jesus Christ is found only in his word, throughout his word, but in this morning, the book of Joel. Some of the other things that we're going to see flow out of this idea of the day of the Lord is God's judgment on sin, his holiness, his love for his people, his provision for his people. And one of the really neat things about Joel, it's, it's a very short book. Like I said, it's only three chapters. But there are at least two big points where we see the, the wonder of God uniting the story of salvation in the Old and New Testament. It is seamless. It is without error. It doesn't stop. Old, all the way from Genesis, all the way through Revelation, it is seamless. The same story of salvation. And we'll see that in at least two spots this morning. And it's culminated in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's get into the text. We're going to be actually going through the entire uh, book, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And let's see what is the day of the Lord. What is this entailing? First of all, in the day of the Lord, it is judgment. The day of the Lord is is judgment. There's no, there's no way of getting around that. That is a part of the Lord. For, for those that are outside God, it necessitates judgment. And then in a, in a small way, as it pictures looking forward, even when it's people that are outside of God's will, there's judgment for God's people as well to draw them closer. But the first thing is the day of the Lord is judgment. Now, to understand the judgment that they're experiencing, we have to jump back and how we've discussed earlier through the different passages that we've looked at in Nehemiah, especially uh, when Pastor Curtis first got here, you see this sin cycle where God calls the people, he blesses the people, the people live in blessing, then they turn because they think the blessing is because of their own goodness. People turn, they walk away, God judges them, and the judgment is designed to bring them back. And right now they're in a period of judgment. So it is the Lord that sends the judgment. It is not the judgment, but it is a foreshadowing and it's a picture of the judgment that is yet to come. It is a smaller judgment. It is a grave and destructive judgment. But even as bad as this judgment is, it is only a foreshadowing of the judgment that is yet to come. It is so bad 
that in chapter 1, Joel is asking the elders, when in all of your history have you ever heard of a judgment like this? This smaller judgment, the sign of the greater judgment that is yet to come, is so bad, but yet it points to something far greater. And the elders are not even, even able to remember when a judgment this bad has ever been experienced. You have to think about this. This is about, about 400, 500 B.C., moving back further in time, about 1446. That's when Israel became a nation. So you're talking about a thousand years of history between when they became a nation, when they became the people of God, and the time right now that Joel writes this book. So what's happened in between? What are the judgments? Well, let's see. They've, they've, they've experienced famine. They've experienced war. They've experienced slavery. And they've been deported from their, from their land for disobedience. So out of all those great, great judgments... This judgment in chapter 1 is far greater than any of those judgments. It's so bad, and they realize it's so bad, that the people are told, tell your children about this. And tell your children to tell their children. And tell those children to tell their children. We cannot forget this lesson, this judgment. It is so bad that we cannot stand to live through this judgment again. We need to appreciate it for what the Lord is teaching us through this judgment. And then all of our peoples need never forget about this judgment. So what is the judgment in chapter 1? What is the judgment that is so bad that it is just tearing the nation apart? And it is a locust plague. It is a swarm upon swarm upon horrible swarm of locusts that is coming into the land of Judah and devouring everything that they have. There is no wine. There is no food. And it is so bad that they can't even make the sacrifices to God. That quite frankly at this point God does not even want because their hearts are not in it. But even if they wanted to, there is no food, there is no wine, and there is no sacrificial system because there is nothing there to make their sacrifices with. In fact, it's so bad that it affects more than just the people. And this is the same in any organization, in the church family, in your family. Sin does not just affect you, it affects those who are connected to you. And in fact, the higher up in leadership you are, the more uh, damaging, the more effective that sin, that judgment will be. And in here, the people have sinned so greatly that the animals are affected. It says in verse chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The beasts are groaning and the livestock are perplexed. Now, can you imagine this? That the people of Judah have lived under the blessing of God for such a long time, and their animals have lived under the blessing of God for such a long time that it's assumed. Even the animals are assuming this, and they're walking out, and the grass is gone. Now, cows are not generally expressive animals, but in some way or another, they're walking out, and they've assumed the blessing of God so greatly, even their animals are perplexed because the food's gone. What is going on? So the sin of the people have not only affected themselves, their children, and quite likely generations to come. Even the animals are groaning under the weight of the sin of Judah. But even as bad as this sin and this judgment is, and really the, the, the exact sin is not even named in the text, It's just an all-encompassing, the the entire nation in a general way has turned their back on God. And because of this, the sin and the judgment is so great, it points to a far greater judgment to come. Read with me if you will. I'm in chapter 2, verse 1. 
I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. So we've looked at the sign that they're experiencing now. And this is the thing. This is the big deal. This is the thing that is so horrible. It's even worse than what they're experiencing right now. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. There like has never been before. Nor will ever be again after them. Through the years of all the generations. Fire devours before them. And behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them. But behind them a desolate wilderness. And nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap in the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn upon for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale like warriors. They charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city and they run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So this is the problem, promise of a greater judgment that is coming. This is the Lord who is raising up an army that has never been seen before. And the Lord himself is raising up this army. It is coming and it will be devastating. And it will be more devastating, even more devastating than the locusts. And it will be far wider in its impact. There will be darkness there will be complete destruction. It will be terrifying. Some of the commentators that uh, I was reading this past week are comparing this to a horror show, something like with Friday the 13th or Freddy Krueger or something along those lines, some type of a horror show like that. I'm not really into that genre, so I'll just take their word for it. But anything like that, this picture, the imagery here is far greater than that. Can you imagine living through a nightmare and experiencing a nightmare and being completely helpless to stop it. This is the promise that God is giving him. And this isn't going to be something that God just does and he's uh, doing it apathetically or he's not, he's not involved in it actively. Rather, he is actively raising up an army to judge not only the nations, but his people in particular because they are not repentant at this point. The purpose of the, the judgments is to judge the nations. So that is, that is part of it. The people that are, that are accosting Judah, that are doing evil to Judah, taking things away from them, part of this promise of this army that God is raising up is he is going to judge the nations who have been inflicting harm and pain and war on his people. The other part of this, which is a little counterintuitive, but the promise of this army is to draw his people back to him. You see, God wants to use the sign, the locust that they're experiencing right now to draw the people back to him so that they don't have to go through this. 
His desire is for this promise, this promise of destruction, just utter chaos, utter war coming upon them. It's for them to hear the word of the Lord and to repent so that they can forego this destruction, this, this second judgment, which is the judgment. How does this speak to us today? What is God using in our lives? What is God using right now in your life to draw you back to him? You see, we need to constantly be returning to God because we all sin. We all make a mess of things. And the Holy Spirit does that. And we need to have soft hearts for the Holy Spirit and continually return to God. Continually make our way back to God through repentance and confession of sin. And sometimes God does use things in our lives that are more of a blessing than a judgment. My mind very quickly goes to a new family. A baby will quickly return somebody to the Lord because as you look at that baby, you start thinking of the eternal ramifications of that soul, that you are 100% responsible for that child's spiritual walk in life. That will be a very weighty matter on anybody's heart. And God can use blessings. There are other blessings that God can use to draw us closer to Him. But God will also use judgments to draw us closer to Him. God can use hardships, and, and they are very real Especially in this time in our nation, many of us are without jobs. Many of us are suffering. Many of us are th- going through many things. And those things don't necessarily happen because of sin. But God can use those things because of sin to point out, listen, you were doing pretty good when I was blessing with you. How are you doing now that I'm judging you? And he uses that judgment because he loves you. And it's counterintuitive, but it's more important to God for you to draw back to him through that judgment and have a close relationship with him. And that is his desire for his people in the land of Judah. Also that he uses in form of blessing is his word in his church. Folks, let's not take for granted what God does when we come together as a church and we study his word. And let's not take for granted the word that is available for us on a daily basis to be in. All of us need to grow. I do not read my Bible every day, but I should. Let us not take for granted the word that is available to us to draw him closer. It is like an apple a day keeps a doctor away. Well, the word will keep us from sin. And if the word keeps us from sin, we keep ourselves from judgment. It's not a bad thing. You know, it needs to become a fuller understanding and a fuller appreciation to read your Bible because you don't want to experience judgment. You know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. The opposite side of that coin, the other side of that coin is, I want to read my Bible because I want to know the Lord more. But not wanting judgment, not wanting hardship is not a bad thing. Use this church. Use the staff. We're open. Be a part. Become a member. If you're a member, be active. But use the blessings of God in your life that you're currently experiencing, recognizing this is not about you. This is not about me. This is about us being more like Christ. There's nothing special about me. I could, there's nothing special about this sermon. What's special about it is God's blessing and God's word. There are blessings that God uses in our lives to draw us closer to him. As we move through the text, we see that the day of the Lord demands repentance. Just like there is judgment that necessarily goes along with it, God desires repentance. There is a way out of judgment, and it is through repentance. It is like God is saying, wait, you think it's bad right now? Just wait. But at the same time, through repentance, this further judgment, the big thing, the, the judgment, capital T-H-E, this is avoidable. But you need to repent. And God tells the people what repentance looks like. I need you to listen very closely because this is so 
applicable to us today. God wants us to repent. Old Testament, New Testament. It doesn't change. It's all the same. And God tells us throughout Scripture what does repentance look like. And we can do this today as a New Testament church out of an Old Testament passage. Reading further in chapter 2 and verse 12. Here's what the return to the Lord looks like. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make your heritage a reproach, and make not your heritage a reproach. A byword among the nation. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? They needed to turn from their own ways. But God was not looking for them to go out and put on sackcloth and ashes and do these things on the outside first. First, he wanted them to rend their hearts, not their garments. Repentance comes from the heart. A changed life is a heart that God has given It's a sensitive heart that wants to hear God's word and looks for opportunities for us to share the blessings of God and what it means to repent. Out of that, there are things that you should expect from a broken heart, from a contrite heart, a heart that desires. And he gives instruction for that. First you deal with the heart, and then comes the things that come. He wants you to make the sacrifices. He wants us to to do away with the, the things that our idols in our lives. He wants the fasting. He wants the weeping. He wants the mourning. When's the last time you mourned over sin? We get such calloused heart that we can lose our temper or something that, you know, we're, we're continually doing, something that we're continually involved in, and we, we lose that sensitivity. And then the big things come along, and we live in the big things like adultery and thievery, and they don't impact our lives because we let our hearts be stony to the small things. When is the last time you mourned over sin? This is something that every single one of us must deal with. Our staff, our pastors, our secretaries, our deacons, our lay people, everybody. Every Christian must deal with this. We have to deal with sin. And we should be mournful because it's not just a sin against one another. When I lie to you, that's a horrible thing to do. And I need to go back and make that relationship right. But first and foremost, it's a sin against God Almighty, who is holy, who is perfect, who has no sin in him, and that should create a mournful heart. It is okay. It is a good thing to weep over sin. But there is hope in that mourning because there is forgiveness. God is faithful to forgive us of our sins, and he does that, and he does that for Judah here. We need to turn from our ways. And there's a tendency for us to be like the nation of Israel. Israel became Israel, the nation of Israel, when they entered into the covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Moses wrote down the Ten Commandments and they agreed, we're going to be your people, you're going to be our God. God said, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be your people. 
and there was a tendency for those people to say, you know what, I'm all right. I'm, I'm in the nation. I, I'm part of God's people. But do you realize that the whole ministry of the prophets was basically to be a missionary, to go to the people and say, you know what, you may be in the nation of Israel, but you're not a spiritual Jew. You're out worshiping Baal. You're out turning from God. You're out being a drunkard. You're out uh, doing whatever it is, that just the litany of sins that Israel is creating for itself. And the prophets would go out and they would say, listen, you're not okay. You need a return to the covenant. God wants your heart. And we have a tendency to be just like that. They were in the nation, and I think there's a tendency for us to be in the walls. And there's, we, we treat these walls like a safe haven that if we just show up, if I can just get my kids to show up on Sunday morning, that's okay. It's not enough. It is not enough to be in these walls. God wants your heart. There is a continual process of repentance that we have to enter into. And if you haven't entered into it, I challenge you to begin thinking, why haven't you entered into that relationship with God to begin your repentance? Because God is faithful and just to forgive any sin. There is nothing so big that you cannot get forgiveness for. God's grace, God's love, God's power is far greater than anything that we can ever do. And that is what God is calling us to. We must continually repent. But in continual continual repentance, we are assuming, I am assuming, God is desiring for you to begin to repent, begin that relationship with Him. None of us is okay. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't think you have to have it all together. The point is, you cannot get it all together. You cannot be good enough to come to God. That is the point. God forgives you not being good enough. We also see that the day of the Lord demands a response. The day of the Lord demands a response, and it is a call to repentance. But in this text, we actually see the Lord responding more than we actually see the people of Judah responding. We see the Lord actually in the text responding more because there's something in the the text that assumes that the people have repented, and the Lord is faithful to respond whenever God's people draw close to him. The first thing that we see is that he has pity for his people. God, who created everything, has pity on his people who have done him wrong. God, who created everything, including his people, he created the nations. There is nothing that exists that do not exist that do that to him, that are due to him for that. He takes the time to have pity on his people because they've been faithful in hearing the call to repentance and have repented. The creator of the universe has pity. Secondly, we see in the text that as, as God is responding beyond the pity, there is retribution because he has allowed nations to go to Judah and judge them. He has actively allowed some nations to go in and take things from them. And in taking things from them, God is not okay with that because they are always his people. We are always his people. And as people come in and they have judged Judah and they have taken from them and afflicted them and caused war and pain and suffering, God judges them for that. Even though he has allowed it, he judges them for what they have done. And in judging them, he calls them out on their arrogance because as he has allowed them to do that, they have come and they have taken from the people And as they've taken from them, they're looking at their stuff and they're saying, hey, this is my stuff. These are good things. I wouldn't have taken them if they weren't good things. This is my stuff. I robbed them fair and square. But God comes back to him and said, listen, my people 
are my things, and you have robbed my people of their things. So their things are mine, and I'm taking them back. And the nations are upset, and it's recorded in the book of Joel that they're actually seeking to pay God back. They're seeking to pay God back. But instead, he says, go ahead, you're going to pay me back. I'll show you what a payback is like. And he calls them, and it is, it is all-encompassing. He calls them out completely. It's not just like being called out into the parking lot for a good old-fashioned fight. He calls out the entire nations, all the way from their old men, all the way through their young people. He tells them, he does the opposite of what Isaiah does. The promise of, to God's people in Isaiah is they can take their swords and put them in the plowshares because they're not going to need them anymore. He does the opposite here in this text. And we see that God is telling the people, this battle is going to require everything of you that you need to take your farming instruments and turn them into swords. Everything is going to be effective, and everything is not going to be enough because whatever you bring, I am God, and I am zealous for my people, and there will be retribution. There will be reconciliation because I love my people. And that is not just Judah. That is us as well. God loves us. God loves you. And if you don't feel that, it could be because of sin, but maybe not necessarily. Maybe nothing necessarily that you've done. The encouragement is, is that there is hope in prayer. There is hope in the promises of God that he will be faithful to reconcile to himself his people and make things right. And that is the promise of God that you can pray. In this <clears throat> reconciliation that will happen in the future, he speaks of the valley of decision, the valley of Jehoshaphat. And this is another thing that will happen in the future. This is where he will gather all the nations together and judge them. The valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision. And this sometimes is thought of as a mass evangelistic thing. Where God will have a, uh, an evangelistic effort and all these people in the valley of decision will make a decision for him. But that is very far from the truth because the text tells us otherwise. The valley of decision is a time where God will gather the nations and they will hear his decision. That he, they will hear his judgment. And it is at this point that it will be too late for them to respond salvifically. Every knee will bow, but they will not bow in a salvific manner. They will not respond because they will have had every chance in the world to make God their Savior, and they have not done so. So they will hear his decision. The application for today is that we need to turn, but also, assuming that you've turned, who is not going to be in the valley of decision? Who is not going to be in the valley of Jehoshaphat because you told them about your Savior and they became a Christian? Who are you keeping out of? Who is God using you to keep you out of the valley of decision? Have you ever shared God's word, God's love with anybody? Is there going to be anybody in heaven, eternally, worshiping alongside you because you took the time to be obedient. There, are, there is going to be a time, there are people in this room that do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And there is going to be a time where the decision is God's and the decision is no longer ours. And God is going to use that time in the future to point back to days like this. And not because of me, but because of God's word. He's going to point back and say, listen, you were in these walls... Sunday after Sunday, you had time and time again to hear God's word. And I, I loved you so much that I allowed you all these chances to hear God's word, but you never responded. God does love even those outside of the church. If, if he didn't, the world would cease to exist. 
So there is some form of love that God does share to the world. Those are outside. And that is maybe why you're here today is that God is using this opportunity. Maybe it's a time and time again opportunity. Maybe today is the day that you will respond and call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. And today you can do that. Moving out from the nations, he turns back to his own people. And we see that he has a provision for his people. He looks at the things that have been lost and he restores them. He gives them back oil. He gives them fruit. He gives them rain. He gives them land. But most importantly, he reestablishes the promise of his presence with his people. Read with me in verse 232. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So he's saying that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be in Mount Zion. They will be in Jerusalem. But further down the text, in 3.17, he says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. And strangers shall never pass again through it. So he is here again reestablishing his presence. That is the most important thing. We experience his presence ultimately through the power of the Holy Spirit right now. But we will be in the holy mountain of Zion. We will be in in Jerusalem. And the thing that's important about that is that God promises to be there as well. Otherwise, it is pointless for us to be there. Catch also... Uh, I could have been just reading out of Romans chapter 10. We had a baptism this morning. Michael Moore quoted this in Romans chapter 10. Every time I do a baptism, I quote chapter 10 as well. It says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. This is Paul in Romans chapter 10, almost a thousand years later, writing and penning the words of Joel. And that just points to who shall ever call the name of the Lord in the Old Testament? Who shall ever call on the name of the Lord in the New Testament? Who shall ever shall call upon the name of the Lord now will be saved. It's the same throughout all of creation, all of time. Old Testament, New Testament, now. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it is his spirit that accomplishes this blessing. It is his spirit that accomplishes this blessing. The spirit is the means of blessing. His word also shares, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. That text is found in Joel 2.28, but I wasn't just reading Joel 2.28 through 29. I was actually reading from Acts 2.17 through 18. 2.17 through 18. What's the point of that? It's here again showing you a couple of things. The seamless nature of Scripture. But in Acts 2.17, 500 years previously, Joel wrote that text. And then Peter decides on the day of Pentecost that he is going to quote that scripture and say, Listen, today these things are being fulfilled. The Spirit of the Lord is being poured out on all flesh. Folks, this should put in us a sense of urgency because prophecy is being fulfilled. We are in the last days. Just as Peter said it, just as Joel said it, the seamless nature of scripture demonstrates to us that we cannot be apathetic about what God is trying to teach us through his word. We're being called to make a decision today, all the days of our lives, 
to recognize that we are in the last days. Other scripture has been fulfilled. Other scripture has been fulfilled in a, in a halfway manner being anticipated of being fulfilled later in the days. But the one thing that you can gather from that is that we are in the last days. And that is a sign today that points to a greater reality that we are running out of time. We are out of t- running out of time to re- live our Christian lives here on earth, to be in service for God, making things matter, making things count right now for all eternity. And we're making less and less time to make a decision for the Lord at all. So what are our responses? Well, quite frankly, I've said it all along. We need to make a decision today. What decision? I, I see so many eyes up here looking, and I'm so thankful for that. But we need to be thinking about what this text is saying to us right now. What are you going to do with God's Word? If you're a Christian, great. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. God still has a will for you in your life to change today. You need to make a decision today. What, how will this word change your life? If you're not a Christian, God's will for you is to be spotless in the blood of Jesus Christ. All that you have to do is the same as Joel said, the same as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10. Call upon the name of the Lord. Confess him as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I cannot turn on my TV without getting a sense of awe and a sense of wonder about what's going on. Forget about the political landscape. The political landscape at some point in time will play a future in, in eschatology, in, in times. But forget about that for now. Think about all the natural disasters, all the things that are going on in the world. Earthquakes, tsunamis, floods. The Bible speaks of these things being used as a sign of things drawing near. And I don't know, maybe it will be another 2,000 years before God comes back. But every moment we live, that is one less moment to face the reality of Jesus Christ. And I cannot help but sense that now. We need to live as if the Lord can come back any moment because he can. We need to have the prayer of John that surely, Lord, come quickly. Can you imagine having that heart? It's a heart that I pray for for myself. Surely, Lord, come quickly. No matter how blessed my life is in this earth, it pales in comparison to the reality and the blessings that we'll experience in Jesus Christ when he returns. Are you holding on to this world too much that you cannot pray, surely, Lord, come quickly. I would challenge you not to have that heart. 